and welcome to Debating Metal. I'm your host, Kenneth Dean, the Dean of Metal, and I'm joined by my co-host, Chris Kay. Today, we're going to take a look at a topic so big, we're going to need not one, not two, but three episodes to complete. We're going to be talking about thrash metal, the big four, and more. On this episode, part one, The Garage Days, much like our previous episodes on glam metal, we're going to dive into the early influencers, the beginning of thrash, and the early days of the big four and their heyday. Kenneth and I will talk about the bands, musicians, and other artists that helped define the genre. At the end, we'll be picking our big four of the big four with our favorite albums by the big four of thrash. But we have added one caveat to our selection. We will only be picking one album from each band. So stick around until the end of the episode to hear which albums that we chose. Also be sure to check out the last episode to hear what our big four glam metal bands were. And as always, I'll bring you another slab of Rusty Metal, and Chris will give you his online pick of the week. Now, Rusty Metal is where I dive into the archives and pick an album that I think is worth giving another spin to, and Chris reveals his choice of a website or YouTube channel he thinks you should check out. If by chance you missed our last episode or any of the previous ones, be sure to click subscribe or follow on your favorite podcast platform, and you'll get our latest episode delivered to your doorstep every Friday, and you'll never miss what we had to say. We also want to read your opinions on these or any of our other topics, so if you like what we had to say or just want to rip us a new one, send us an email to debatingmetal at gmail.com or message us on our Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter pages. And speaking of social media, be sure to look midweek or so every week as Kenneth Dean will post a video social media of his Rusty Metal pick and give you some more details about the album. And with that said, what's your Rusty Metal pick this week? All right, Rusty Metal this week is from an influential band in the thrash genre, Venom's Black Metal. Okay. Venom released Black Metal in 1982. It is their second release. Came out on Neat Records in the UK and Combat Records in the United States. It was produced by Keith Nickel and Venom. And like I said, it's their second album, and it was considered, uh, Venom was considered part of the new wave of British heavy metal, but they quickly separated themselves as more thrashed than the rest of their peers. Um, the band was influential in starting the black metal genre uh, with their satanic song titles and lyrics. The one thing that that, that people adopted or that Venom never adopted was the the face paint and the, and, and doing all that stuff. Like, like there was a little bit of that that came from Celtic Frost, but not from Venom. So, and I guess... The, Celtic Frost being from that general vicinity in the in the world, I guess they had that influence on the black metal scene with the with the makeup and stuff like that. But Celtic Frost didn't use it too often. But nonetheless, um, Venom basically were the beginning. I mean, you talk about early influences, which is what we're going to talk about in this episode for Thrash. They were the early influencers for black metal, and you know between lyrics and and themes and imagery there they were a major influence on that scene and this album titled black metal actually named the genre the album featured the songs acid queen buried alive countess bathory and black metal now 
black metal was was more of an homage to the power of of listening to metal. I mean, if you listen to the lyrics, it, it's it's talking about how metal kind of moves them, but they added the black metal part to it, and that's where they came up with the title. But you know, it's it's a really I love the song myself. I mean, I, it, it sounds like shit, but <laughs> but the <laughs> song is a good song. Uh, Countess Bathory is written about the Hungarian noblewoman who's infamous for being a prolific female murderer, having tortured and killed hundreds of young girls and women between 1590 and 1610. That was like the early days of serial killers. <laughs> I'm surprised. Yeah, I mean, a, a known for bathing in their blood. I mean, yeah, yeah she was crazy. And almost, you know, there was some, you know, because it was you know, so long ago or, you know, that the time period at which this happened, people believed in vampires and all that stuff. And they thought she may have been a vampire because she was looking for so much blood. And the extreme metal band Bathory took their name from this song, Countess Bathory. So this is a really cool album. The production on it, it's funny because I was just reading some notes on it that the singer when when they recorded their first album welcome to hell learned some techniques and some and and studio tricks during the recording of the first album and i'm sitting there going well where were they when they recorded the second album because i didn't <laughs> hear anything um it's just it, i it's meant to sound bad and and real rough but what's funny about it is that they they went and later on said they wished they would have recorded it better um, which they changed the style of which they record music now to make it sound more normal, I guess you could say. But at the time, this was about as rough and garage sounding as they could make an album. Uh, but it is extremely influential. It is still available out there today. Black Metal, Venom, second album. Get it if you find it. You know, it's funny that, that they wish they, they had recorded it better because it really did inspire an entire genre of music. That uh, you know was was heavily adopted in in the you know the Scandinavian region. So it's funny how those things happen, and people will pick up on it and say, "This is you know this is what interests me. This is what represents what I want. I'm feeling." And so it's you know it's just kind of odd that they <laughs> something that they thought was kind of a mistake turns out to be you know something that another person really enjoyed. Yeah, absolutely, and it, it, it's it's just a it's a unique thing that that those bands said. Oh yeah, it sounds so much like crap. I like that sound, and I want to <laughs> duplicate that. So you know, and it's funny because on the flip side, you know, talking about an early influencer in the black metal genre, Celtic Frost. On the other hand, Tom Fisher wanted his stuff to sound superior. He wanted it to sound crystal clear and and have a really good production. And I mean, their bass on some of the early Celtic Frost albums is amazing the way it sounds. And the, the bass drum is clear and everything is really good. To me, Celtic Frost for that time period had some of the best sounding stuff uh, when it came to thrash metal or, or heavy metal in general. Mm-hmm. And so it's it's amazing that the genre black metal went in the opposite direction and chose to record like Venom rather than Celtic Frost. So I don't know for sure you can't you you, you can't please everybody. <laughs> no, not at all. So what do you got this week for online pick of the week? 
Okay, for online pick of the week, um, uh, before I start with that, I actually want to mention that uh, if, as 2021 rolls out, I mean, we're only a couple weeks in, I am keeping an eye on new releases. I know a lot of bands have been, you know, planning this, you know, for this year to release new stuff. There's not, there's not a lot that's been, you know, set in stone saying we're going to, to deliver this at a certain date. But there's so much that's in production. I'm sure we're going to get some really great releases. So I'm going to keep an eye on that. And I'm going to keep listening to new stuff as it comes out. And, uh, you know, definitely let you guys know if I find anything that really sticks out. Um, so for online pick of the week this week, I picked a channel that's been on YouTube since 2009. I've only recently been uh, made aware of it. And it's a guy who does Everything from classical covers to adding some really awesome riffs to fanatical speeches and more. And this is Andre Antunes. I know I've shown you a couple videos, uh, Kenneth, and uh, basically what he's done with some of these new videos is he's taken some speeches from... There, there's a guy named Kenneth Copeland that I'm sure a lot of you have heard of, um, but he took, he took a speech from the guy where he's talking about, uh, you know basically getting the demons out of covid and uh he's he's taken the tone and the 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 meter of his speech and added riff to it and so it, you can see that the guy's super talented because he can listen to you know the 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 inflection and all these things and and add a really kick-ass riff to this stuff there's there's one that i watched recently called uh karen metal and <laughs> it's just so funny it's this woman you know ranting about how you know you know america's not the america it used to be and stuff like that and it doesn't matter your your political beliefs or or anything like that because it's not really focused on on those kind of things it's just kind of making light of the seriousness that are the over seriousness of a lot of things in our lives right now. And uh, I think, I think we're all kind of aware of, of what I mean by that. So um, definitely check out his channel. He doesn't, it's not just funny stuff. He does some really cool videos where he's, he's basically taking one song and playing it in the style of multiple guitarists, which is really cool. And uh, he's, he's got some original work on there too. So definitely check him out. Cool. I know which video you're talking about with Ken, Kenneth Copeland. That was mm -hmm. um, pretty wild, uh, if you ask me. The, the music was cool. Uh, Kenneth Copeland's a nut. <laughs> so uh, that definitely uh, is some pretty cool stuff. I, I like that. And that, that actually, that video with Kenneth Copeland went viral. So uh, oh, yeah. good, good for Andre <laughs> on that one. All right. Well, that brings us to our topic, the big four and more, thrash metal. And this is part one. And so it's going to be mostly talking about the earlier influences and, and basically the beginning of the scene. And we're going to crawl our way through the 80s into 1990 and kind of stop there and hit our next episode. Um, and when, when talking about the early influences of thrash metal it, it is it's more than just the new wave of british heavy metal it's more than just heavy metal in general it, it's it's a it's a really weird thing how these influences got into some of these musicians 
For sure. I mean, uh, we there's a couple bands that I want to talk about before we get to the new wave of British heavy metal. But there's there's a lot of um, other genres that kind of influence the sound of what would become thrash. I mean, you've got you've got you know early early uh, rock bands from the '70s all the way to punk. You know, there's just a lot of elements that came together, just like any other genre of music, where the the influences pile on together and something new is created. I mean, I I know I want to talk about a couple bands. Did you have anything you want to say before that? No, uh, what I was leading into uh, those bands that you want to talk about with that comment, you know about the the fact that they come from so many different genres. So I know the fir- I think the first on your list is Queen. Mm-hmm. So I definitely want to talk about that because Queen is not, you know, your average metal band. They, you know, for the for the most part they're not a metal band, but they play music that's heavy from time to time. But in general I mean they've got a few songs that that border on the metal metal genre. I mean Bohemian Rhapsody has has definitely has some metal elements to it, uh, but the song in question here is definitely uh, Stone Cold Crazy. I mean it's it's got a ripping uh, pace. I mean it's it's a lot of the elements there of what thrash would take on, and even Metallica ended up covering it in 1990. Uh, because it was one of their influences, and they, you know, they wanted to respect with with their Garage Incorporated. They wanted to respect all these bands that uh, that you know really influenced them. Um, not just Garage Incorporated, but the Garage Days, etc. All those, you know, that ended up on that that compilation. Um, but yeah, man, it, it, there's there's so much that that uh, surprised me about this was because it as we go through this list because you know when seeing or actually listening to it in the context and saying you know these are these are songs that really do have a deep connection to thrash and you can hear it oh absolutely and and what's amazing about this song you think about it 1974 it, queen's second album if i'm not mistaken and it's i mean they're not at this time they're not a super hard rock band they're they're diving into the glam metal or glam rock scene um they're they're diving into what would be the the hard rock scene but they're also got a little bit of elton john to them you know in that kind of scene as well so they're they're a really eclectic band i mean that is owed all to freddie mercury but the band themselves, you know, they, they didn't really have a, a definitive direction until Freddie came in. So the the cool thing about this particular song, and I was listening to it right before we recorded the show today, and I, I got to tell you, more than anything, I, I don't necessarily think, I mean, obviously it has been mentioned that this was an, er, a, an early influence on thrash metal. But to me, more than an, an influence on thrash metal, this was a huge influence to me in the new wave of British heavy metal. Because if you listen to the song, it sounds like it could easily be moved into 1980, 1979, 81, and be just the same kind of song as a Diamond Head song or a Tigers of Pang Tang or an Angel Witch. It it sounds exactly like that. And that's why that particular song stands out above the crowd when it comes to influencing the thrash scene. Because it was literally the beginning of the new wave of British heavy metal, even though they had nothing to do with it. 
Oh yeah, and and same to be said for the next song we want to talk about, which is Black Sabbath with "Symptom of the Universe." Um, it, it it definitely has that that early vibe of what thrash would become it like that the dna you know right it, the same that we've talked about with black sabbath kind of being the dna of metal um it, it it's funny that they they influence not just you know the early early metal that would pop up but but really all genres of metal you know they're they're such a a, a landmark band so important to the genre but symptom of the universe definitely has some of the drum work has the guitar riffs that that definitely follow in the line of thrash and it's not thrash but you can see like i said the dna there uh for sure i mean symptom of the universe is hands down one of my favorite black sabbath songs and you can see it with it with the speed that it has, um, the rough recording that it has. You know, it 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 wasn't Black Sabbath never really had awesome sounding albums, but they they were very for the times they were very good. But they were they're definitely very dated sounding albums. And this one is sounds a little rougher around the edges. This particular song than most of the other songs that they have. And and this, like I said, one of my favorite Sabbath songs. I love Ozzy's version that's on Speak of the Devil. I think that's a great version to me, the best that's out there. Um, but it's been, you know, covered by Sepultura, an, another thrash band. Um, it is, it's, you know, one of those songs that it has all those elements like you're talking about. But not only not only symptom of the universe. When we, you were just mentioning Black Sabbath as an early influencer for for all of heavy metal, think about this: Met- of the big four, okay, Metallica, Megadeth, and Anthrax all have recorded a Black Sabbath song or more. You know, and uh, Metallica covered Cabra Sadabra. Oh, excuse me. Metallica covered Sabra Cadabra. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. It took me a second. I was like, what the hell's that? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, Anthrax covered Sabbath, Bloody Sabbath. And Megadeth actually did two covers. They did uh, Paranoid and Never Say Die. So it, it tells you their influence or you know Black Sabbath's influence on those guys, on, that, on those bands. Oddly enough, Slayers, you know, it, being included in the big four, they're, they're such a different band. Because their influences are a lot different than the rest of these guys. But uh, we'll talk about that a little bit later on. But Black Sabbath was huge, huge in the scene. So another band that was prior to the new wave of British heavy metal would be Motorhead. And we've we've actually done an episode where we talked about Overkill. Um, But Overkill, the drumming is, is... Definitely. I mean, you can you can hear it, uh, especially the song "Overkill" right at the beginning. Um, there's there's such a heavy beat to it that it it just draws you in, and you can tell that these guys that they became the the you know forefront of the thrash movement all definitely admired you know or or emulated Filthy Animal Taylor. I mean, he just the drumming on this was uncanny especially for 1979. So you, you've really right on the edge of what's going to become these bands. 1980, 1981, they're, they're all kind of starting to pop up, establish themselves. And, I mean, this is, this is right at the edge of, you know, like, oh, shit, this is, this is what we're going to do. Oh, I mean, Overkill, 
is is such a good album, such a good song. And and you could just hear how much influence just by put, the first time you listen to it, you're like, oh, okay, yeah. I mean, you could tell right away how much influence that song has had on that and that genre, and and just in general, Motorhead as 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 just a band that they didn't they weren't a DIY band like a lot of the punk bands were, but you could tell that they were just they didn't give a shit. You know, they had a particular sound, which was similar to the Venom sound. So I think that's where Venom decided to get their sound from. And and that might be, and I, I would say not might, but that actually is a huge reason why I couldn't get into Motorhead and Venom early on. Because I, being a semi-audiophile, like things to sound good. And those things don't sound good. <laughs> but it's all relative when you think about what what they were doing, what they were trying to convey, and when you think about it, it's almost masterful now. You well, yeah, it's it's a subjective thing. Your 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 right. opinion is 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 based on what your ear hears and what you feel. And with bands like Motorhead, they're not about being, you know, clean and 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 perfect. They're they're about being rough and and you know dirty. And exactly. that's, it's it's the opposite. So it wouldn't make sense for them to have the the cleanest production with the attitude that they're projecting, and and I think that was something. Also, thrash was coming, you know, out of you know the the new wave of British heavy metal, where everything was nice and pretty and big hair, and there was an attitude shift. So it's not just the music. But it's it's the attitude of these bands. Like Queen, obviously, is a little different. But Black Sabbath, they they were you know dirty, normal guys. You know they weren't wearing spandex and jumping around the stage. And Motorhead, same thing. So I mean, a, a lot of the other bands that were that were popping up, um, you know, they may have they may have had the the music, but they didn't necessarily have the look. So you can see kind of where that was coming from too. Oh, for sure. I mean, you can see Black Sabbath were just four guys. They they tried to be trendy, you know, with the bell bottoms and high heels and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But they still had their own look to them, and their look was pretty weird when you think about it. But it was it was that was the thing back then, you know. And Motorhead just didn't care. They just you know jeans, leather, boom, go, you know, and yeah. pl- plug into your amp. And, and go about it. You know, Metallica, during the Monsters of Rock tour with Van Halen, um, Sammy Hagar once commented, what you see is what you get from Metallica. Um, the same clothes that you see them play on stage with are the same clothes they wear off stage. Now, hopefully they change and they go into other shitty clothes because those clothes were pretty sweaty. But for the most, <laughs> you know, for what it's worth, I mean, the, the, they were the same clothes. I mean, ripped jeans, t-shirts, you know, band shirts, whatever it was, that was Metallica. And Sammy yeah, it was Hagar a lifestyle. Yeah, exactly. And Sammy Hagar's like, look, what you see is what you get. Those guys are legit. They're real, you know. And you know, they took that from bands like Motorhead and 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 stuff like that because that was it motorhead was real lemmy was as real as it gets you know and as down to earth as it gets and you know metallica paid you know homage to to 
to Motorhead, you know, by releasing an EP in 1996 with the four songs called the, the, the Motor Headache. You know, four songs. And you know, Overkill was one of the songs that was included on that. They did four songs. They gave it, they showed it to Lemmy, and, you know, they it was pretty cool, you know. So yeah. to, to pay that kind of, you know, uh, tribute to the band. Well, a lot of the, well, really all the... F- the early thrash bands that was the same mentality i mean it wasn't just metallica all oh no these guys, yeah, i know all these guys just they were who they were and i mean one example that i can definitely say is carrie king is carrie king all the time yeah exactly he doesn't give a shit <laughs> <laughs> no he doesn't and you know it's it, it is what it is when you get it you know with when it comes to carrie i mean he's he's not gonna you know pull any punches none all right, so the next one I want to talk about is the uh, probably the biggest influence on Metallica period, and that's that's the early early uh, band that that they covered quite often, and people actually thought their songs were uh, Metallica songs, and that was Diamond Head. Their first release was in 1980. That was uh, Lightning to the Nations. They were uh, part of the new wave of British heavy metal, so we're getting into that now. And, uh, I mean, they're, they're another band from Starbridge, England. So you're going to see most of these bands that we're going to talk about, if not all of them. No, most of them, because there's, there's a couple from Scandinavia, et cetera. But um, pretty much all of these influences are going to come out of the new wave of British heavy metal. Yes, uh, the new wave of British heavy metal was a huge influence on the thrash scene. And it's really strange because the thrash scene didn't have the best vocalists out there. Um, they're better now, but I mean, James Heffield is not a, 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 a high-end vocalist. Tom Mariah is not a high-end vocalist. Dave Mustaine. Now, on the flip side, Joey Belladonna is a great singer. Okay, so... These guys in the new wave of British heavy metal, most of these guys were good singers. Well, I mean, Joey Belladonna had, wasn't their first singer, though. No, and, but, and Neil but Turbin even was, Neil was a decent singer. He was decent, you know? yeah. Not, yeah. Not quite the same as but Joey, though. No, but he wasn't a, he wasn't a growler or a screamer. You know, he okay. had a high-pitched voice. or You know, he, he screamed the, the typical 80s metal scream. But his in terms of singing, he wasn't growling. He wasn't scratchy. Mm-hmm. He was a singer, you know. But that, and that's the way the new wave of British heavy metal was. These guys weren't necessarily screamers. They weren't growlers. They were singers. Mm-hmm. You know, and and you know, Diamond Head, they they sang their songs. So it was it was definitely a strange take when when bands like Slayer, Megadeth, and Metallica took those songs and and ran with them. But those bands were just so different. Metallica recorded. Four songs from from this first album, from Lightning to the Nations, and a fifth song, "Sucking My Love." Is, there's a demo out there somewhere that Metallica's played. So they've, you know, I mean, that's what they only had eight songs on the album. So that's more than more than half uh, of that album that was recorded by Metallica. And Megadeth themselves even recorded the same song as Metallica did. Electric, it's electric. Yeah, I mean, so, it it wasn't hard for these songs though to translate into the the thrash vocals. And and it was the music itself that I think really drew the you know them they there was something that that was happening where they were they were hearing the the music 
and it was it was inspiring not just not just Metallica but like all these bands that that were kind of feeling the same thing and, it, and it's the same thing we talked about with with uh, the glam episodes where you know people from all over the world were feeling the same thing it's a cultural shift that's happening i think and and so they're hearing these songs from from their their influencers and taking it into a different direction and attitude and i i I always think that's like the biggest thing that that can be taken into account of these genres of music is the attitude itself and not not always the music because the music can be played in a different way obviously that's that's seen from the diamond head versions of these songs to the metallica versions of these songs they are the same song but the attitude's different yeah for sure i mean the, the the attitude that that the thrash scene developed was almost the antithesis very similar how grunge developed as the antithesis to glam metal um thrash metal was very similar it was the antithesis of of glam metal especially in the LA scene you know slayer developed out of their dislike of i love you songs you know, and <laughs> yeah. gotcha, gotcha, baby. You know, let's do it tonight, baby. You know, the baby songs. Slayer he didn't like that. And then Metallica didn't like that. And over on the East Coast, the there was a difference. The hardcore punk scene was 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 thriving in New York and 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 that whole area there, the New York City hardcore scene. And so it influenced a Scott Ian, even though he was influenced heavily by Kiss and Aerosmith and, 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 you know, early hard rock bands, but there was also that hardcore scene and that's where they developed into the moshing and all that stuff. Well, there's, there's also something that I just thought of that's kind of an interesting factor to that is that Scott Ian is a really big comic book fan. And you could see in the same time that before this, genre of music started developing there was a shift in the writing of comic books too and that's that's a cultural thing like you can see as as culture changes um the 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 literature will change as well and the the vibe of the literature and so comics were actually becoming much darker at that time you see and especially like dc comics batman became much grittier um much more realistic in a way and i think those things because because his writing has always been influenced by comics i mean we we've seen it in so many of their releases that I think that is even telling, not necessarily a direct reference, but a cultural reference in a way of the way things were shifting, the attitudes were changing in the 80s, and these guys were being influenced by that mentality too. Things were becoming darker. Definitely. I mean, it's weird because the 80s are, are such a revered time period. But there was that, you know, the 60s and the free love. And then in the 70s, there was all the disco. And the anti-disco is such a strong hatred. <laughs> it, it sparked up all these really angry kids. <laughs> and there was such a backlash that, you know, you have things like heavy metal developing, the new wave of British heavy metal developing, and, and, and you know, the hardcore punk scene. And the and even in the New York, it was weird. It was like two different punk scenes. There was the, the Ramones punk scene, and then almost kind of like the spoken word punk scene that kind of developed into new wave. 
you know, early on. Because, I mean, the Talking Heads to me are not punk, but they were considered that because they were, you know, early, the early punk. Same thing with Blondie. They were early punk, but then they ter- they developed into new wave. The Talking Heads developed into new wave. The Ramones stayed the same. You know, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> they never changed. <laughs> never changed. Uh, ever. <laughs> you know. Much like but, Slayer. You know, I'm sorry, much like what? Much like Slayer. Yeah, exactly. You know, but like I was listening to the other day, the dictators that eventually kind of morphed into Manitoba's Wild Kingdom. They were always had this sense of hard rock, you know, but at the same time, they were never really that hard, you know, and they were never really that punk, in my opinion. But that was that that was the style that they were developed. And, you know, and all this, you know, we talked about glam metal. And, and let me say this now, you know, um, uh, rest in peace to Sylvain Sylvain, who passed away this past week. Huge early influence on so many different b- bands and musicians out there. Anything from glam metal to glam rock to heavy metal to even thrash metal. There were some some of those bands liked the New York Dolls. So rest in peace, Sylvain. That that New York scene was so different, and the LA scene was so anti glam. You know, all these things, all these influences all over the place just eventually found its way into these kids at the same time, you know, in, in early 1982, if I would say, 81, 82. And it's amazing what it developed. Oh, yeah. So the next band that I want to bring up is the Tigers of Pantang. Um, that's that's a band, honestly, I've, I hadn't heard too much about over the years, uh, you had, you had actually mentioned them last year, and uh, I kind of listened to some of their stuff. Now, their their first album uh, is from 1980, Wildcat. To me, this was the only one that really felt like a a thrash predecessor. I listened to a lot of their other stuff uh, in preparation. Pretty much every one of these albums we're going to mention, I listened to in preparation for talking about this because. I wanted to get the feeling, the vibe of, you know, where this, where these references came from, why these bands cite these, these particular albums or bands as a inspiration. And so, um, yeah, the Wildcat, the first album, there's definitely some drumming, some heavier, uh, guitar work than what would appear on the later stuff, which more felt like, you know, Def Leppard and, some of the 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 more poppy aspects of of the new wave of British heavy metal, um, but this one, yeah, definitely uh, another band from England. You know, it's funny that you you bring up this particular band because they kind of tie into the conversation that you and I were having at work this morning when it came to these bands that who influenced these people to do the things that they did. And not not necessarily, you know, influencing in musical influences, but like managers and record companies kind of directing them into a different look or a different direction musically. And I think that's one of the things that happened with the Tigers of Pang Tang. They came out, they were part of the new wave of British heavy metal. They signed actually to a major label, MCA, right off the bat. So they weren't even... You know, one of these bands that came out and did a, an indie an indie record, and you know, you know, tried to survive for years. They got signed because, of course, all of a sudden, you know, all the English labels that are you know English major labels are out there saying, "Hey, we need to sign these these bands." So they got on MCA, 
and they released his first album, which is what made them famous. You know, this is the songs that they were playing in the clubs. Euthanasia, Don't Touch Me There, Wildcats, those songs were, were popular. But then, like you said, you, you think this is the only kind of one that would influence the thrash. The second one, Spellbound, just went away from that. They just slowly began to change directions. It was heavy, it was metal, but it wasn't... You know, it wasn't the, the 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 rawness that you would get from all the other new wave of British heavy metal bands. And so, yeah, so their influence kind of died down real quick. You know, yeah, the was grit first just album. wasn't there after that first album. And right, that, exactly. Yeah, it's, it's a big shift. Um, so the next band we're going to talk about is Iron Maiden. Um, you know, 1980. Who? With their f- Who? I, I, I've never, never heard, heard of, of that them, band. Yeah. <laughs> uh, 1980 with their first release. Um, I mean, you've got songs like uh, Phantom of the Opera, which definitely have some, some you know, roots in, in the, th- the thrash movement. Um, w- one thing I want to mention about that particular song was that one of the, sl- the ways that Slayer actually got hired uh, was they had been spotted by Blan- Brian Slagle. Uh, who watched them perform Phantom of the Opera. So he, he really saw something in them and signed them to Metal Blade. So this de- song definitely has some connections in Thrash. Um, and, and really, the first couple albums, they have a grittier sound than what would come later, you know, because Paul Deanna was on vocals. And he ha- he had a rasp to his voice that really kind of fit with, with what was going on in Thrash. It's funny that that story with Brian and, and Slayer, that it's that particular song that kind of intrigued Brian. And I'm mm-hmm. sure it's because Brian had heard the album and realized, man, these guys can play that song. They can play anything because that song is very intricate to play. Mm-hmm. But it's more like songs like Prowler, the, the, the lead song on that album, is incredibly influential when it comes to thrash to me because of you know, the, the way that they just, it's, it's a clean guitar, not clean in terms of sound, but you know, just it's a straight guitar soloed. You hear this thing come in and then the whole band crashes in and it's, you can almost visualize it like a, a, an intro song. You know, you just hear this, the lights are down, you hear this car, guitar come in and then all of a sudden it's like, dun, 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 and the whole band just jumps out, light smoke bombs and everything going off. And, and that's, the the influence that comes on there amazingly enough though two big thrash bands metallica and anthrax choose to record covers of a slow song on that album oh yeah <laughs> remember remember tomorrow was covered by anthrax in 1996 on the b-side to the nothing single and then later on covered in 2008 by Metallica on the Maiden Heaven tribute to Iron Maiden album. And it's just so weird that they pick those the slower songs. They don't pick a Prowler. They don't pick a, 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 a Phantom of the Opera or anything like that. But, you know, they pick Remember Tomorrow, even though the end of Remember Tomorrow picks up the pace a little bit, especially the Metallica version. But, you know, still, it uh, it's it's a very different song. But I guess if, if you think about it, Remember Tomorrow is almost like a blueprint of what a fade to black and welcome home would become, you know, slow at the beginning and then thrashing out at the end. Yeah. So, there's, there's definitely similarities there. Yeah. Iron Maiden is a huge influence on so many bands 
and you can see why. I mean, they're still around today. They're still the best metal band on the planet when it comes to selling out gigs. But funny story is Chris Jericho asks Rod Smallwood one day, says, hey, what 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 do you still have to achieve? You know, you're you're on top of the world. You know, what else is there? And he said, what keeps me up at night is trying to figure out how to be better than ACDC. <laughs> because ACDC is still the number one band out there when it comes to attracting an audience. It's incredible that even then, even Iron Maiden, at, at where they're at, wherever they go, they sell out stadiums, still feel inferior to another band. That's incredible. Mm-hmm. And Metallica is the same way. I mean, they sell out stadiums wherever they go, but I'm pretty sure that they feel inferior to Iron Maiden or to ACDC. Well, that's it's, it's, that's something to be said about the, the humbleness of, of musicians that mm-hmm. really understand, you know, yes, they're, they're influential, et cetera, but at any given moment, their time could pass. You know, they have to stay a, a little bit of cut above the others because, I mean, how many bands that we're talking about here are, are influencers but didn't, you know, sustain their career? I mean, Diamond Head, for example, is is a huge influence on why Metallica is as big as they are, yet they really don't have a, a huge following or, or you know, consistency in their career. So I'd, I'd tell you this. Anything and everything that Diamond Head has to this day, they owe to Metallica. Because mm-hmm. otherwise, they'd just be working some nine-to-five job out somewhere in England and not receiving any royalty checks. And funny, if, it's it's vice versa, too. Because because if they didn't have that influence, they wouldn't sound the way that they do. So it's just it's really interesting how things happen, and they happen how they happen. I mean, honestly, to me, the Metallica songs that would come on Kill 'Em All sound better than most of the stuff that's on Diamond Head, uh, their first release. But at the same time, um, I really enjoy the album, and I can definitely see where the the influence comes from. So there's, I mean. It, there's a reason why the people that become popular become popular. Oh, for sure. All right. So the next album you mentioned earlier, and that's Venom with black metal. Um, I mean, I, you, I think you kind of said it all for the most part with that one, but yeah, there's, there's definite thrash roots with the, the sound of the album, the grittiness. Um, there's, you know, the drumming is, is definitely thrash drumming. And other than that, I think you kind of covered it. Yeah, Venom, you know, they 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 started with a, a year earlier with Welcome to Hell. And it, that, you know, that was exactly what it was. You know, it was an introduction f- to the world. Hey, this is Venom. Hey, how you doing? <laughs> and this is this is how we sound and you know, we don't care. You know, and then they came out with Black Metal. And then they they had already told you on Black Metal that they had a third album coming out at War with Satan. Because that song ended the album, but then At War With Satan would be their third album. And then they actually had a 20-minute version of the song on the album, as opposed to the three-minute song that faded out at the beginning, uh, at, the end of, at the end of Black Metal. So they, they almost kind of like planned everything out to some degree, even though they were probably just not knowing what was going to happen. Those three albums were huge on that scene. Uh, you know, their fourth album was Possessed, and it just really didn't have the same influence. It, it, there was a lot of, I guess, the 
the the touring and the and the and the songwriting and all that just began to suffer and it wasn't as influential mm-hmm. but those first three albums were like landmark albums for for the band so they had a huge influence on the scene and you know it, obviously it sparked a whole another scene you know so it tells you that kind of influence that they were across the board you know influential oh yeah for sure uh so the next band that we want to talk about is raven and uh that was their first album came out in 1981 that was rock until you drop um to me i don't feel like that's that really has any thrash elements to it. Uh, but the following album in 1982 wiped out, I can definitely hear it. Um, and this is a band I'm not really very familiar with. So this is, this, I want, I want to say this is my first time really listening to either of these albums, but I was intrigued because I definitely felt that thrash vibe out of wiped out. I, I haven't listened to wiped out in ages and even when I listened to it ages ago, I never really got into it. I never was a big Raven fan, but I did get into Raven when they released um, when they when they went on Atlantic Records and they had a tremendous amount of push for their Stay Hard album. Um, and when that album came out, it wasn't thrashy at all. Um, it was really really high polished new wave of British heavy metal, and it they began to lose their influence on the scene uh so much so the next album the, i believe was the pack is back basically turned off all their bass their hardcore fans their main bass and their career you know kind of stumbled at that point and it, it's tough because those first three albums i mean they were they were they were big for 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 raven and they were big for the scene I mean, so much so that they, the the album All for One, they made a deal with with um, Johnny Z and Megaforce. Megaforce distributed it in the United States, and so much so they brought Raven to the United States. And with Megaforce now having Raven in in the fo- in the family and Metallica, they put him on tour. They said, "Here you go, go on tour." They did the Kill 'Em All for One tour in 1983. It was very successful for those kinds of bands and that kind of you know club club type of show. And the uh, Raven continued their tour after Metallica dropped off. Anthrax released their new album, Fistful of Metal, their debut, and on Megaforce. And Johnny Z said, "Go back out on tour." And <laughs> Raven went back out on tour, still supporting you know uh, All for One, and now is Fistful of Metal with Anthrax. So Raven had a huge influence because it was almost a direct influence. They literally face to face with these guys. And that's that's why they were so influential on the scene, but their own management ended up screwing them over and, and basically derailing their career. Oh, wow. That, I mean yeah, that's that's definitely a story I didn't know about. I mean that's that's unfortunate, and and it's something that that comes seems to come up a lot is is how much the the producers etc have uh, an influence over the bands and what direction they go in, and that's something I want to talk about when we get to the the third episode, or I, I believe it would be actually the second episode um, when we talk about uh, Sepultura is the influence that producers have on the band. Uh, but that's, of course, a story for another episode. 
And uh, so the next band that I want to talk about is Angel Witch. And this is a band that, again, I'm not super familiar with. I've heard their their music. The track Angel Witch was on a game that I played, uh, Brutal Legend. So if you're fans of Brutal Legend, then uh, you've definitely heard this track before. Um, you can tell that there's, there's again, that DNA of thrash in there. Um, this is one of the, the albums that uh, a lot of people, uh, bands will re- uh, recognize as kind of shaping the the early era of thrash and if you haven't heard it i definitely suggest listening to this album i really haven't engaged with much of the other stuff from their their catalog but this album uh when i listened to it the, in the last few days i was like wow this is this is actually really cool the album's very cool and here's the thing much like diamond head after this album, they didn't have much of a career. While five years, it took five years to get their second album out. And then they put out another album the year after that. By that point, the new wave of British heavy metal was relatively dead, you know, by the mm-hmm. mid-80s. I mean, it literally was 79 to 83 was the biggest chunk of the new wave of British heavy metal and the biggest influence. After that... It, it really began to get watered down, very similar to, you know, the, the glam metal that came out of L.A. and all that stuff. And, you know, but the glam metal that came out of L.A. was, it took a little bit longer to to die down. Whereas the new wave of British heavy metal, because of production changing and, and because of just the lack of money that really went into that, those bands suffered. And they... They they came and went really quick. I mean, you talk about a, a legion of one one hit wonders. These weren't even one hit wonders. They were they were one album influencers, and then they just disappeared. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Angel Witch was like that. Angel Witch was a cool ass album. You know, it, it, I mean, I love the song Angel Witch. is a super cool song, and you could see you can hear the influences. You know that they would have. Uh, all throughout the album, but then all of a sudden they disappear for five years, you know, and I never really looked into the reason why I'm sure it has a lot to do with, you know, record labels and, and alcohol and drugs and all that shit, you know, but it's one of those things where it's like, you take five years, you're, you're going to get lost, especially when it's right after your debut. So that's what happened with Angel Witch. Yeah, and it, but that first album cool. In a time period that bands were releasing, you know, one album per year sometimes, sometimes one every two years, some bands even more than one a year, um, to wait five years was just almost a death sentence. And it, I mean, it clearly was. Exactly. So. Next band that I want to mention is, is Accept. And uh, so they had actually three albums before this this album that I want to talk about. Uh, they had Accept, I'm a Rebel, and Breaker. And Breaker had a few moments in there that had, you know, kind of thrashy sounds, but it wasn't until Restless and Wild. And the title track, you know, or, or Fastest Shark and the title track, really, um, you hear that, that like the fast pace, exciting drumming. Um, it you can definitely hear the influences of where, you know, they they you know put their their stamp on what would be thrash. So, you take you take Overkill from Motorhead and you you instead of a thirty three and a third on the on the record player, you put it on forty five. Oh yeah, and that's what that's what you get with Fast as a Shark. So the speed. 
just the speed of the drumming alone. It, the drumming is exactly like Overkill's, uh, the band, not the band, the, the song from Motorhead is almost exactly the same in terms of, of style, but it's at a hundred miles an hour. Fast as a Shark is such a cool song. I love that song. Uh, this album is a great album um, from from Except Restless and Wild. Huge influence on the scene just because of the of the drumming, um, but the guitar sound too is so. It it, it sounds like a buzzsaw. I don't know. It's just, they have a very unique guitar sound, and it's, that's something that I've always liked with Except. They just have a very unique sound. Their influence is is felt. They're not British. They're German. So they have a different attitude and they have a different style about them, but yet still equally as influential on the thrash scene. Yeah, I, th- I think and, with Breaker, they. I'm sorry. Yeah, with Breaker, they kind of found their their footing because their first two albums weren't very successful, um, and then so Breaker, they finally kind of find their footing. But then with Restless and Wild, that's really where they found their niche. You know, they. Exactly. The, the, the albums yeah. that followed, Balls to the Wall, Metal Heart, um, and then even into now, you know, with the with the, the Mark Tornillo era of the band, um, they have kind of found what they did, and it all really started with with uh, Restless and Wild. So um, definitely put their, their fingerprints on the genre. Yeah, Bre- Breaker definitely, they found their direction and then they kind of honed in exactly what they wanted to do when it got to, to restless and wild. So that, that's definitely the, where they went from there. Definitely. All right. So one more that I want to mention that, that, uh, is in the metal genre is uh, merciful fate. And the only reason I want to mention them because their first album was in 1983. So it was around the same time, actually after Metallica's release, um, the, the um, the reason why this is so important is because they had early demo tapes that the the bands that you know the big four all heard and were thought thought wow this is this is really cool. I mean Metallica specifically cites them as a reference, and then Slayer is is really influenced by the 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 you know the the lyrical content of. Melissa specifically, and when they released uh, "Hello Waits," that was that was one of their speci- like they said this is this is what we wanted to do. You know, when we heard Melissa, we wanted to not necessarily mimic, but you know, follow in their footsteps. And the lyrical content shifted into you know the the satanic stuff and the demons and you know the the wizards, you know. It, not necessarily wizards and stuff, but like they they were focused on that demonic culture. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Mer- Merciful Fate. I mean, that first album, Melissa, is amazing. It's incredible. Um, it, it is. It. I mean, it's eight songs, and it is. You could hear all the influences that that album has had on Metallica, Megadeth, Slayer. Maybe not so much Anthrax, but on on the on the three bands that came out of California, absolutely, and even so, you know, just even more so the the, the San Francisco scene, um, the, the 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 Bay Area thrash scene, Merciful Fate had a huge influence on. This album is amazing. Um, the, the the songs that are on it, just the riff after riff after riff after riff. Um, definitely the, the, the lyrical content definitely had a major influence on bands like, 
Slayer specifically, um, a little bit on Megadeth in, in terms of some songs that they've done, Death Angel, um, Exodus, uh, all those bands that came out of the Bay Area Thrash Testament definitely had uh, their influence on it. So it came out late, or in 83, it came out later than, you know, let's say, you know, because it came out after Metallica. But the, you remember, Metallica, Kill Em All is their first album. They still have, you know, three or four albums to go, bef- you know, before their 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 influence is fully felt is on other bands, but they're getting still getting influenced by other stuff coming along, and you can hear that along the way, and even you know later on with Megadeth on their 2000 album, the world needs a hero. There are there are direct references in their riffs to songs that are on Melissa. I mean it's it's incredible how lasting Melissa is on these bands. Oh, for sure. And there's one more band I want to re- mention before we move on to the, the big four. And that's a, a, actually a punk band that has been kind of cited as a really early example of, of the thrash sound. And I thought that was really interesting. I, I looked this band up, but the music was actually really hard to find overall. I, I found some of it on YouTube, um, but it was a band called Void, which their only release was a split album with another band called The Faith. Um, so it was really high-speed punk rock, and you can really hear thrash in this. I mean, there's there's definitely evidence of thrash dr- drumming and the, the aggressive vocals, the same thing. So I thought it was really interesting that a band from another genre was really kind of feeling the same thing and going in that same direction again i'm i, I want to cite this as like a cultural thing that's going on where the attitude is carrying over into multiple genres of music and i don't think they're necessarily truly a, an influencer on any of the big four but i thought it was really interesting to bring up and talk about because i had never heard of this band but, uh, I mean, music historians recognize that they, they have a, a you know, foothold as well in the thrash genre. I, I, I unfortunately didn't get a chance to listen to this today. Um, I did hear one song that lasted about 15 seconds. <clears throat> and it reminded me of Agnostic Front's uh, album, Victim, Victim of Pain, I think it was called. Mm-hmm. Uh, which I believe has got like... Uh, 20 songs maybe maybe, i I could be wrong i know it lasts about 10 minutes the whole album you know which reminds me of slayers rain and blood which lasts a whole 20 minutes Mm -hmm. you know and it's so there is that that punk element that that influences metal you know anthrax got influenced by hardcore punk um and the hardcore scene that came out of New York. I don't know if Void ever played in New York, but being from Maryland, I'm sure they got up there. You know, so they they may have done a, you know a couple of opening acts for uh, the other bands that were in the, in the area. So I'm sure they they were heard by the by Anthrax. And from what I heard, the little that I heard today, you can you could tell because of the drumming. Definitely, definitely not um, vocals or anything like that. But the drumming, you could see where there's influence and punk in general just influenced a lot of what would, you know, turn into thrash as well. Well, I do want to note that like maybe it was because of the specific song that you heard, but there were 
tracks on this release that actually did sound very thrashy in the vocals, which was what was, was shocking to me. So, so if I, if I get a chance to listen to it then maybe on the next episode, I'll, I'll have a, a few more comments just to kind of touch base on what we had already been talking yeah, about. Yeah, for sure. Um, before we go on to, to the, to the bands, the big four themselves, um, I just wanted to mention a little bit. There are so many bands in the new wave of British heavy metal that influenced the scene. Um, you know, we talked about Angel Witch. There was bands like Blitzkrieg that Metallica covered. Um, there was bands like uh, Def Leppard was part of the, the new wave of British heavy metal, but they versioned to a different direction, very similar to how Iron Maiden went in a different direction, but they did not follow the same path. Um, there was bands like Elixir. There was Girl School, Girl, who had um, Phil Collin, who would later join Def Leppard, and it also had uh, Phil from L.A. Guns was the lead singer, Phil Lewis. So there's there's that. Grim Reaper was another band that came out of the new wave of British heavy metal. Um, Holocaust, another band that Metallica covered, new wave of British heavy metal. Um, obviously, Ant, uh, Iron Maiden, Jaguar, you know, Mama's Boys were very similar to um, Raven in that regards. Um, Praying Mantis was a big influence on New Wave of British Heavy Metal. Um, there were Samson. Bruce Dickinson came out of out of Samson. They were also big. Um, Savage. And then there was uh, Sweet Savage, which Vivian Campbell came out of that scene, or you know, that band. Zaxxon was a huge influence coming out of that. Tank, Thunderstick. Tokyo Blade, Witchfinder General, and Witchfind and Ratchild. All these bands. That's how there's a huge amount of, of bands that were so influential to, to this scene, the, the the thrash scene. It's it's uh, it's amazing that thrashing doesn't sound like like half half of them in general. I mean they 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 took the songs, but you know, or they took they took the ideas, but it's just amazing how how different thrash became. Oh yeah, definitely, definitely. Uh, you know, a lot of influences that we can't necessarily cover them all. Um, if if you want to check out, you know, some of these bands, um, we we can definitely create a list, you know, of 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 some of this stuff so that you know you can you can look up these bands because they're definitely worth checking into. And I mean, especially all the ones that we we've, we've listed here and talked about in depth because it, you really do hear where that that dna is where the where the blueprints are for thrash and uh, it's it's so amazing to you know kind of hear this uh you know in, in a way like the these are our heroes these these thrash mu- musicians are our heroes well who were their heroes you know so it's very cool to experience all right so the big four who are they and why are they here <laughs> All right, so where does it all begin? Well, uh, one of the earliest bands that would be formed out of this would be uh, Leather Charm, which was James Hetfield's band before uh, he joined Metallica or created Metallica. And that was after his first band called Phantom Lord. So you see some some roots of Metallica happening there. Um, he actually wrote Hit the Lights when he was in this band. Um then he would go on to form, he would meet Lars Ulrich and go on to form Metallica along with Ron McGovney and then later Dave Mustaine. 
Um, they appeared on Metal Massacre in 1982 with uh, the Hit the Lights, the, uh, an official recording. I think there were two pressings of this that had that that on it. Yeah, the the first pressing actually had a guitar player named Lloyd Green. That's true. Yes. Play play one of the guitar solos. Uh, Dave Mustaine was also on that. the The second pressing had the updated version of of Hit the Lights that did not have Lloyd Green on that's, it. That's correct. Um, so. Then we have 1981. Um, that would be the the actual formation of Metallica. Uh, then they would release in 1982. After the, their appearance on Metal Massacre, they would release a, uh, a demo tape called No Life to Leather, which is fairly easy to find. Um, I know there's, there's, you know, uh, unofficial releases out there. Is there an official release of any type of no, no, um, like to leather? the, of the original. So, so originally it was just a, a cassette tape and it, it got recorded and, and dubbed a million times, but the band on record store day about seven years ago or so, um, released a cassette version of that, original demo tape so essentially they re-released their own cassette uh, as record store day special and so that became the official release but it's not technically listed as an album that came out from metallica okay well this was the only release that they would have both dave mustaine and ron mcgovney on Um, after that they would re-record almost all of the songs and add a few more in 1983 with kill them all uh, they would replace the mechanics with the Four Horsemen, add a few more tracks, and add on Kirk Hammett, who was from Exodus, uh, replacing the outgoing Dave Mustaine. And this was released on Megaforce. So I know you have a lot of thoughts on Metallica, obviously, um, but this was the first uh, Thrash release. I mean, you you lived it. So any thoughts on that? I wasn't aware of when this album came out, um, but you you go back. I mean, I, I only missed it by a year and a half or so. You go back and you listen to it, and you you you're in that scene a year and a half later, and you hear these bands like Metallica and Megadeth and Slayer and and Anthrax, and it it you, it's it's almost like you're you're a little baby because these bands are starting fresh and you've just discovered them and it's so cool. And you, and you go back and you listen to this and it's like amazing to listen to and, and, and realize that this was just something that was born right then and there. You know, it wasn't something that you had to go back because your brother had a, had a kiss record and you say, Oh, you discover kiss years after they, they, they were already in existence or, or Black Sabbath or Led Zeppelin. You know, it, it was, this was something that happened right in front of your face. It was born right there. It was so cool, you know, getting, you know, being part of that, even though I didn't see it and, and, and I didn't live it, the immediacy of it, because, you know, at, I, I was just looking today how Raven in, in 83, Raven, and, and Metallica played in Yonkers, where I grew up, at the Rising Sun, which was 10 minutes from my house. I was 14 years old. I don't know if I could have gone to that club or not, mm-hmm. you know, but it was, it was, they played right there. They were right in my hometown. 
And then they played Lemoore's a, a few weeks later, which was in Brooklyn. You know, it, it was just, they were right there, you know, and you, you, you wish you would have, I would have seen them or I wish I would have seen them. But the scene in general, as everything grew, as Slayer became popular, as Metallica became popular, as Anthrax became popular, and Megadeth kind of joined in later on. It was, and I say later on because they didn't come out with an album until 85. They were the last one. Mm-hmm. It, it, it was just so cool because then there were other bands that were similar. You know, all these other bands trying to be thrash or, or something like that. You know, Raven was popular. Uh, you know, Venom came to the U.S. a couple times. And Merciful Fate tried to, but they never really, they never really got a foothold over here. Um, you know, things like that. Celtic Frost was, was, was coming over. Exodus began in 85, you know, so all these bands were starting to develop. Overkill was, was built building in the New York, New Jersey area. So you could, you had this sense of something boiling. Now that was cool to me. That's the cool part about it. Yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, this was, this was something different. This was something new and landmark. And the the fingerprints were there. I mean, the next release would be Slayer with Show No Mercy, but uh, it didn't quite have the the impact, the you know, the excitement behind it that Kill 'Em All had. And uh, I mean, obviously Metallica is is the biggest of the big four. Um, their next release would be Ride the Lightning. I mean, this was this, and it's funny that that that's the second release, and it's already their first departure from thrash. You know, they 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 have a <laughs> they have a their first ballad on there. So you have a you have the band that started the thrash movement already kind of moving away and becoming a little bit more experimental. Um, this was also the last one that had any writing credits from Dave Mustaine. So really, the last time you'd see him until the following year, uh, in any capacity. Uh, with the you know Megadeth's first release, but Ride the Lightning was breakthrough. I mean, just huge. Ride the Lightning. Okay, so the, so the first song I heard from Metallica was Whiplash, and that was off the Kill 'Em All album. And I ran out and I bought the Whiplash EP that had a neck brace, the neck brace remix, and it had two live tracks. Um, and it also had Jump in the Fire. And then I saw Ride the Lightning. And I said, oh, another album from Metallica. I need to get this. And I bought that. So I didn't have a full-length album from Metallica prior to Ride the Lightning. I didn't have Kill 'Em All. So I, I get Ride the Lightning. And the the one I get is the, you know, they're already on Elektra Records by this time. I put the needle down on Fight Fire with Fire. And I hear this, what sounds like a 12-string guitar I mean, at the time, I don't know what the hell it was, but you hear this guitar intro. It's it's clean, it's soft, it's slow, and then you hear this build up, and then I got the shit scared out of me when that song started. I was like, "What the hell is this?" And and fight fire with fire would scare the crap out of me for like the next two years <laughs> because it was such a heavy, fast, and you know, at that time, with the Cold War going on between Russia and the United States, that song just kind of emphasized, we're going to die from a nuclear bomb. And that's why that song scared the crap out of me. And and I was like, but it was so cool. <laughs> you know? <laughs> and, and then, you know, 
Ride the Lightning comes on and then, you know, For Whom the Bell Tolls. And it's just an amazing album all the way through, you know, Fade to Black. Uh, then you go to side two and you hear um, Trapped Under Ice, Escape, Creeping Death, and then The Call of Cthulhu. Uh, there's there's not much you can say, but you're, you after you pick your face off the floor because it just got melted off, you know, you, you, you put yourself back together and you say, what did I just hear? What the hell was this? Because this was absolutely mind-blowing at the time. Mm-hmm. Oh, for I mean, sure. It, you know, for, for, for the people who were getting, were listening to Van Halen and Judas Priest and ACDC, you know, you, you got Judas Priest releases, um, def, you know, Screaming for Vengeance and that, that lasts all year long. And then Defenders of the Faith comes out towards the end of the, the, the following year. And you have this. This is not like Judas Priest. This is not like Iron Maiden either. You know, at this time, when Ride the Lightning came out, they had, I don't know if it came out before or after, but you, you have Iron Maiden with Number of the Beast and Peace of Mind is already out. And yes, that those that is the quintessential heavy metal. This, Ride the Lightning, is something else. You know, Kill Em All is something else. You're like, what the hell? You know, you, you, you've got Slayer. Slayer was building. The reason why Slayer didn't have that same impact at first was because Brian, I don't think Brian had the same kind of push behind Slayer that Johnny Z had behind Metallica. Johnny Z was crazy excited about Metallica. It was, you know, crazy excited about starting Megaforce. I also don't think Slayer found their niche as well until Hell Awaits. And even then they didn't, they didn't master it. Like they didn't, they didn't have it down until Rain and Blood. So it wasn't until 1986 for them that they really figured out who Slayer was. Um, right, but but at the same time, like for instance, Johnny Z, he had a huge, huge contact in the radio world. Mm-hmm. That contact was Eddie Trunk. He Eddie Trunk had a radio show. Yeah. And he ran to Eddie, he says, Here, put this on. And even Eddie didn't know what he heard when he when he finished playing whatever he played, I can't remember what song he played first. When he finished playing it, he's like, What is this? I have no idea what this is. And and he didn't feel it at first, but Johnny Z was crazy excited. And even even Eddie didn't get it until Anthrax released the Armed and Dangerous EP. Basically, you know, from 83, two years later in 85. Yeah. So that's how new and fresh this was and no one understood what it was. So, you know, listening to Ride the Lightning when I did, it was just mind-blowing. Whoever caught Kill 'em All from the beginning, it was a mind blowing experience. Oh, for sure. So yeah, so that's what you got back then. Well, then Metallica really found their their like where their direction was going with Master of Puppets in 1986. Uh, this was the unfortunately the final album to feature Cliff Burton. Um, he would pass away not long after the album because of a bus accident that. That, I mean, if you're listening to this, you probably know about. You know. <laughs> um, and then this was also their first release on Electra Records. So this was the, the you know, big change for them to be on, on a major label. Um, the, uh, the tour went extremely well. 
the band was was blowing up at this time. Uh, many people re- revere Master of Puppets as as Metallica's best album. Uh, so, so this was this was the point that things were blowing up. Like we mentioned earlier, Rain and Blood was coming out at this time. Uh, Megadeth had already released their first album, and Anthrax had already released two albums by this point. So, so now the thrash scene is really starting to develop. Yes, it it eighty six is a huge year for for thrash, um, if not it, one of it, the biggest. Yeah, yeah. I mean. It, it, to me, it, it's it's probably the biggest year when it comes to thrash. By this time, Exodus had already come out with Bonded by Blood. Overkill came out with Feel the Fire. So, you know, you have Anthrax that, that, that had released Spreading the Disease, and they're in the process of making Among the Living. Among the Living was the last of the big four albums to come out. Um, it came out at the beginning of 87, so you, you, you lump it into the 86 category. 86 saw Metallica release Master of Puppets and uh, Slayer release Rain and Blood and, uh, Megadeth release Peace Cells but who's buying and then right coming around the corner Anthrax release releases Among the Living think about that oh it's massive I mean as a as a as a a fan I mean you're just you don't know what to do with yourself I mean and so you think about this too. This is you're you're liking this, right? So, but at the same time, there's a, there's a, a majority of the fans who like this music also like the other stuff coming out of L.A. and New York, the 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 glam metal scene. You know, there people are still liking Motley Crue. You know, at this point, Motley Crue has yet to. They just released Theater Pain. This is. The, Theater of Pain, all the thrashing is the antithesis to Theater of Pain. It's like the complete opposite. But you know what? I like Theater of Pain, but I also like Master Puppets. I liked Come on, Feel the Noise, but I also liked Kill Em All. At this time, Twist's sister is enormous at this point. I mean, they're 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 in the process of of winding down whatever was coming from Stay Hungry and and, and working on what would come out to be come out and play. I mean, this is this is a, just a monumental time for metal in general at th- this this eighty five eighty six eighty seven period, and with those four albums coming out in in that year's time, I mean, it was incredible to be part of that scene. Oh yeah, for sure. So the next album that they would release would be the last of the 80s, and that was Injustice for All. Uh, it was the first album to feature Jason Newstead, though technically we we know it's really hard to hear any of the bass because of the hazing <laughs> uh, that Jason you know suffered when he first joined the band. Um, so basically the, the bass was mixed out for the most part. Um, but he was featured on the album, and obviously, if you hear any live materials, you hear it very well. Um, and then, <laughs> and then, um, this was also the last to have any writing credit from Cliff Burton. It's it, it on "To Live Is to Die." They used a riff that he had created. So, um, you know, a, a bittersweet end to the '80s for Metallica. This was uh, often considered, you know, the last really thrash album from the band. Um, so the, the innovators, the guys that kind of created it, this was, 
you know, them kind of turning the page and, and moving in a different direction when we get to the nineties. So, so what do you think about that? If you, if you take everything as a whole, you you see how killer wall started with hit the lights and you see how, and justice for all ends with Dyer's Eve. It's, it's basically the perfect bookend to that time period, to that era of Metallica. And to, to sit there and say that the 80s were, were it for Metallica, many people sit there and say that Metallica ended after Kill a Ball. Metallica ended after they fired Dave Mustaine. You know, then they sold out when they wrote when they did Ride the Lightning and they wrote Fade to Black. Then they sold out on Master of Puppets when they released Welcome Home Sanitarium. You know, each each album getting better and better and selling more and more and being more and more influential. To those people who say that Metallica sold out, you missed out. If you don't listen if you didn't listen to Metallica after that, you you missed out. That period, I mean, literally, it's not even think about it. It's a five-year period, 83 to 88 in terms of releases. Five years, four albums. I mean, it's amazing. That that time period was incredible. So we kind of have a good understanding of where Metallica, you know, started and where they ended with the 80s. Um, so and we've kind of gone over a couple things with Slayer, like we mentioned Show No Mercy, uh, so again, that was that was when they first you know started on Metal Blade. Uh, this you know not quite found their sound, not fi- quite uh, you know developed into who they would be. Uh, Hella Waits, as I mentioned earlier, really gathers some of those lyrical themes from Merciful Fate. You know more in the direction of where they would go with the um, you know hellish sounds. Um, but but Rain and Blood, like we mentioned, 1986. This is the first release on a major label. This is this is Def Jam, and this is incredible. I mean, this is this is their groundbreaking moment. People to this day still, you know, cite this as one of the best, if not, you know, in their opinion, the greatest thrash metal album that ever happened. Slayer. Slayer was a different band when this album came out. It, Rain and Blood. I mean, if you listen to to Show No Mercy, okay, so so it goes like this: it goes Show No Mercy. Then they put out an EP um, called Haunting the Chapel, right? And then they put out Hell Awaits, and then they put out Live Undead. You got these four releases: two EPs, two full length albums, and in all that you don't get what is going to hit you in the face when you put on Rain and Blood. You don't get any of that. You get you get the speed. There's a little bit of speed in there, but the production sounds so flat that you, it's 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 not inspiring. You know, when you listen to Kill Em All, you, the production was so different. It, it, it was so in your face. Show No Mercy was kind of just really weak. And Hello Waits gets a little bit better. But Rain and Blood, I mean, that was a completely different band. I mean, for the better, obviously. But man, you know, from beginning to end, it is relentless. 
I mean, Angel of, Angel of Death and Raining Blood are my two favorite Slayer songs. And they're on the same album. One's the first song and one's the last song. And everything else in between. I mean, I listen to that album constantly. It was a time period of my life where, you know, I was I was exploring the darkness, if you will. And that album was just there all the time for me. It is so different from Show No Mercy, from Haunting the Chapel. You know, lyrically, it's even then, you think about it. They were trying to be dark and they were trying to be evil on Show No Mercy and Hell Awaits, but they really didn't. I mean, they referenced Satan uh, a, a few times on Raining Blood, but if you think about the songs, lyrically, they were different. They were much more mature. They weren't necessarily directly in your face about Satan, but they were more in your face about evil whether it was evil about Auschwitz and, and, and World War II and the Nazis or, you know, death. But it wasn't so, you know, like hell awaits. There were, there were certain songs, yes, but there was, it was more about evil and, 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 and death than it was about straight up Satan, although there was a couple of songs. It was it was a much more mature release than the first two. It was like they figured out who they were, and to to this day, I still throw this album on all the time. It's so good. It's you know it's a short album, but it's exactly how it should be. Uh-huh. You know, there's no there's no filler. There's no junk. Like it is a near perfect album from beginning to end. Um, it's hard. It's so hard to to express. It is it is a a monumentally great album. Master of Puppets from Metallica comes out that same year, and you hear how good Metallica can be. You you hear them at the pinnacle almost of their songwriting. You know they they've they've matured. They said you know they've taken that next step. Slayer took a huge step forward with Raining with yeah, Rain and Blood. Yeah, there's there's like a there's a clear graph with with uh, Metallica, and it's not much of a slope because I mean, Kill 'Em All is really great. It's but it's raw, mm-hmm. you know. It's right. it's it's young, you know. And then Ride the Lightning became more mature, and the Master of Puppets reaches a level of maturity beyond that. But you can see it's a, it's a pretty clear slope. With with Slayer, it's it's like almost like a flat line, you know, like like that that like beep. Yeah, you know? it goes up. And also, <laughs> um, it's a spike. And, yeah, and it was it was such a monumental release that they they scared themselves with the quality of the release because with South of Heaven, they thought we have to do something different because because we've done something so huge. You know, they they purposely slowed down their tempo. They purposely changed the direction that they were going in a a way like lyrical themes, etc. are still the same. But they they had to change the sound a little bit because they were afraid of just repeating the same thing and not making any progress. And honestly, South of Heaven's a great album. Um, I mean, we did a whole episode where we talked about South of Heaven and Seasons in the Abyss and you know, go back and listen to that episode because we go in much more depth than we'll go tonight. Um, but, you know, I think their their next two releases, South of Heaven and Seasons of the Abyss, were still great albums. The, the funny thing about, 
you know, we, we referenced it when we went over the head to head with those two guys, with those two albums. And what, what's funny about it is it, we, we, as we mentioned, Raining Blood was one extreme. South of Heaven, it was like, we can't do that again. You know, so they, they came out with something different. And then Seasons in the Abyss is, is the perfect melding of the two. And you have this really good album. And and that is that is the epitome of what Slayer is and became. Very few bands can be like Slayer. And I can only think of one other band that can continue to put out the same style of music, album after album after album, and no one care. And that's ACDC. Okay. And, and <laughs> when I say no one true. cared, like no one cares that it's the same thing. I mean, they, they want it to be the same thing. Okay. Yeah. They, they didn't need to reinvent the wheel to be, you know, successful. Right. Like when you, the, the, the funny thing you always hear, well, I'm an artist and I don't want to repeat myself. I don't want to do the same thing I did before. You know, you hear that so much. You hear it from Metallica. You hear it from Megadeth. You hear it from pff, Anthrax. Jesus. <laughs> I mean, the only time they ever did anything back to back similar was these last two albums, you know, and, but they yep. were both good. It's, it's, you know, Metallica always trying to find something else. And, and they've found their niche now in the last two albums. But man, it, it's like, you know, even even with what they released in the 80s, you know, Ride of Lightning came and they they had learned some, you know, they went to, to Copenhagen to Sweet Silent Studios because they had heard, you know, some good albums came out of there. And so they, they needed to, they knew that they needed to improve the sound quality of their album. So they, they released, they, they record Ride of Lightning. Then when Master of Puppets comes, it's like, all right, now we know we, we can improve this. We, 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 now we can refine this, right? And then the, the amazing part is they go to do Injustice for All. They're already riding high at this point and they're insecure, they're so insecure. They say to themselves, okay, we know that we're good, but we 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 have to prove that we're good. That's how insecure they were. They they felt it inside, but they said, okay, now we're going to do, you know, we're going to record every single riff we come up with, and we're going to figure out a way to stick it in the song. And that's what they did with Injustice for All. You know, and to the flip side, Slayer, they they built up, and they, they spiked with Rain and Blood, and then they said, okay, what do we do now? Well, we're not gonna, we can't repeat ourselves, so we need to do something else. So they go the opposite direction. They slow things down. They get into a more little bit of a groove, and they come up with South of Heaven. And then they finally found their niche, and they said, okay, this is it. Now we got it. Seasons of the Abyss. This is cool, you know? And then things changed, you know? The, the 90s came around. The, the 90s came around. They fired Dave Lombardo. Things things would change in the next few years with their next releases. Um, it's bound to happen anytime there's a lineup change, and especially a cultural change as we get into the 90s, and we'll mention more about that later. But, yes, Slayer definitely, you know, that was, that was their, you know, classic initial lineup. Um, like, like we said earlier with Metallica, that was kind of their classic initial lineup and you'll see that kind of continue the, the only exception, you know, really being Megadeth where they, they really found their classic lineup in, in 1990, but you know, still that those first few albums with, with Megadeth, as we, you know, mentioned with the rest of these bands is 
the initial you know group of albums that people say those are the the best of the best or at least the best of the thrash sound of the band so you know the same thing with anthrax which we're about to talk about um anthrax was a little bit different the other two bands and megadeth uh that we just talked about um are all from california whereas anthrax is from new york city her first album was Fistful of Metal in 1984. Uh, this was released on Megaforce, uh, only album to feature, feature both Neil Turbin and Dan Loker. Um, and the, a funny story about that is that Eddie Trunk heard the the release of Fistful of Metal. He didn't care for it. Um, he said the music was awesome, but he didn't think that Neil Turbin was the singer for them. He thought that, you know, a guy that was that was able to sing, uh, you know, the the higher tones, the you know, the the traditional '80s style, was going to be the guy to carry them forward, and that they should replace Neil Turbin. So Eddie Trunk actually had a big factor in on because he pressured Johnny Z, Scotty, and he said, you know, I'll play this guy's music, but they got to find a new singer. And they did, and Joey Joey Belladonna was the guy that carried them for the next you know five six years. Anth- Anthrax is the most unusual of the four bands. Um, to say eclectic, and to say diverse does not even describe what Anthrax is as a band, and going you know when Fistful of Metal comes out, you know you got Dan and Neil. Uh, leading the charge in terms of vocals and bass. And, you know, Dan Lilker basically finds his way getting kicked out of the band for for whatever reason, you know, personality conflicts arise, and that's fine. And then Neil's just not that singer that's going to take you to the next level, as evidenced by the fact that he really didn't have a career after that. Um, So Joey joins the band, and Charlie recommends his nephew Frank Bello. They they join and they create spreading the disease, and th- at that point, you know, now they've 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 kind of to this point they've they've matured a little bit, and Scott's writing more songs, and that, that it was at that point where Scott and Charlie became the the main songwriters, and Anthrax would become who they are. You know, Fistful of Metal was was the great starting point, and and it's very similar to what you said with with um. Slayer, you know, you kind of have this flat line and all of a sudden, boom, you jump up. So you, theirs is a little bit different. Theirs is a flat line. You get a little tiny bump up with spreading. You know, they they starting to build up. It's almost kind of boiling. And then among the living, you know, it it spikes. Anthrax is is such a unique band because they, when we talked about just a few minutes ago, where artists don't want to recreate themselves. There's not a single album that Anthrax duplicated anything with, except for, like I said, the last two albums, which is, you know, For All Kings and, and Worship Music. Those are the only two that sound remotely close to each other. Everything else is completely diverse from, from one to the next. I mean, there's, there is the consistency. There, there are thrash elements, obviously, in all these releases, the drumming, the, the, the musicianship. Um, but the songwriting is 
drastically different, as you said. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, by the time they get to Among the Living, which I, I tend to feel that the spreading the disease to Among the Living, to me, is a logical step forward. Um, state of Euphoria is almost like a lateral movement in a different direction. Mm-hmm. It's, yeah. you know, it's, it's funny. Um, and then Persistence of Time is just a drastically different album i mean i know there was a lot of stuff going in their lives at the time that kind of changed the tone of what was going on they they, it was a much darker sounding album and this was this was their 1990 release that also the last to feature joey until he rejoined the band 15 years later so i mean this this was a big uh, again 1990s hitting and you're seeing a big departure in in one of these big four bands and that's it's so interesting that it right there at that that borderline of 1990 is such a change for every single one of these bands. The same thing that we talked about with with glam. It, it's it's just it's a culture thing that's happening again. Yeah, I mean the the whole scene in terms of metal across the board is changing. Um, be 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 it from lack of new ideas or be it from obviously you know. The, the the like you said the cultural change where people's tastes are changing dramatically even if you're a metalhead your tastes are changing the music is changing you know and and bands like Alice in Chains and Soundgarden and Nirvana and Pearl Jam and the Melvins and Soundgarden uh, Soundgarden and Mudhoney and Screaming Trees they're changing the the game at this point and they're all from the same area and you know all of a sudden it's like wait a second, what's going on here? And so it, it almost felt like all these bands, even though I would say consciously they, they didn't really care about how those bands from Seattle were affecting things, there was still a matter of it was, it was affecting them in regard separately, it was it was different. It's it's hard to kind of really describe. Each of these bands, Anthrax, Metallica, Slayer, and Megadeth, all had something change for them by 1990. You know, Metallica riding high off of Injustice for All, they they go in the studio to re- to record their next album. You know, Megadeth. Well, they were riding high, but they were also suffering on the inside because of oh, their loss of their, yes. their brother with, with Cliff. Yes. So for them, I think that was that was the turning point, even though it wasn't necessarily felt until, you know, three, four years later. Um, I think that was really the turning point in the direction that the band would go. And, and yeah, then Anthrax, as, as you were saying. Yeah, Anthrax, you know, they, they're seeing the, 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 the music, scene and 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 the styles change and unfortunately very similar to how kiss you know had to change with the style you know kiss kiss went from being this 70s hard rock band to a uh, a 70s kind of disco-ish band because that's what was playing and you know they they tried to refine themselves with with creatures of the night after the disaster of the elder and then they said okay now you know we've got this really really hard rock album but we're going to go more glam metal you know, and then they get all the way to the to the two to ninety two into the nineties. You know, and then grunge is so influential; they want to be grunge. 
you know, and then all of a sudden they, they scrapped the whole thing and, and went back to being the seventies band. Anthrax was very similar. Anthrax saw the writing on the wall and said, you know what? We want, we want something like this. So we want something to the effect of grunge and alternative metal, but we need somebody who can pull it off. We need somebody with a little grittier voice. So they fired Joey and they hired John Bush. I personally think it was a genius move, but that's a conversation for another day. We get up to 1990 and that's Joey's last year. Well, also make sure to check out the episode where we talked about John versus Joey. Um, oh yeah. That, that's a, that's a, a, a one we did a while back. Uh, but we talked about some of these, you know, opinions on which, which was the better singer and, and the decisions that they made, et cetera. So make sure to go back and check out that episode. Um, but absolutely. And, and, and moving on to the final, uh, member of the big four, uh, and, and I say final because technically they, they started, you know, right after Dave Mustaine left Metallica, um, but uh, didn't have their first release until 1985. So that puts them as the last to have an entry into the field. And uh, that was Megadeth with uh, Killing is My Business and Business is Good. Um, so one thing that's really interesting about this album is Dave... Dave had a, you know, he, he, he wanted revenge in a way. He, he, he didn't like the way that he was ousted from the band. And, and I always tend to think that this, you know, they never could have coexisted. The attitudes were too big. Dave is a big personality. James is a big personality. They're both control freaks. It it never would have lasted. And so I think that, you know, him moving on and doing Megadeth is the best thing that could have happened to him. I think he realizes that now, but being a young guy, you know, there was anger there and the anger was channeled into the music. And while Killing Is My Business is definitely, definitely not their best release, um, you can see like he really pushed the speed of Thrash with this release. Um, One of his goals was to prove that, you know, he wasn't just a drunk. He wasn't just a, you know, a guy that, that couldn't control himself. He wanted to prove that he could play, you know, amazing music. And, uh, so on this release, the mechanics made its appearance, which was first heard on no life to leather, the, the Metallica release. And, uh, I, I mean, I personally really enjoy both versions of the song, the four horsemen and the mechanics. Um, and it's the, their first release on combat records, so what are your thoughts on the, their, their first, you know, outing as a band? When, when, you, when you look at the, at the totality of the four bands, okay, so you see Metallica got signed to Megaforce Records, right? And then Anthrax got signed to Megaforce Records because they were in the same neighborhood. And Slayer got signed to Metal Blade. Why... Why did Megadeth not get signed to Metal Blade? Why did Megadeth not get signed to to Megaforce? I can understand Megaforce because, you know, Dave was probably burning bridges all the way back from from New York all the way to L, you know, to L.A. So, you know, he he probably didn't want anything to do with Megaforce. Now, from what I understand, he you know he he's got these demos, the Last Rights demo, and he's trying to shop it. And no one cares about it. I don't know what what Brian didn't see in in 
the the demo that he didn't choose to sign them because I mean they're they're brethren at that point. I mean, Kerry King was actually you know helping Dave out at some point, so they all know each other. So what what is the deal? Why is it? And I tell you, the reason why is because yes, he went he set out to be faster than 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 Metallica. But you know Slayer was already doing that, and Slayer was doing it better. Uh, he he set out to to try and one up the people that that burned him, but to me the songs weren't there. You know, it, yeah, you got mechanics, and yeah, you got killing is my business. But as as the rest of the album as a whole, eh, not that great. So there was that lack of 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 really good songs, but that would change on the next album. I mean, critically, "Killing Is My Business" got mostly positive reviews. So it's it's not necessarily that they they it wasn't all there. Um, I think people just didn't quite get it either at the time that it was released because it was trying to push it. And I and I don't agree. Also, that that Slayer was doing it faster and better because the stuff on "Killing Is My Business" is is faster than the stuff that Slayer had done at that point. Um, so I would I would definitely disagree with that. However, uh, Peace Sells, But Who's Buying, you know, the next year is, is, is the same kind of step forward that we talked about with Slayer, where you go from Hell Awaits to, to Rain and Blood. It's the same thing with Peace Sells from Killing Is My Business. It's, it's light years ahead of it, Killing... It, monumentally and this is their first release on capitol records so so obviously people saw something in them from the release from killing is my business to uh to peace cells i mean the the other thing is there was definitely a drug problem on the first album that caused them to use half of the money that they they were paid to to create the album uh, to on drugs and then they had to self-produce it so you go from from that, the you know the poor situation, the mishandling of what they were doing, uh, the the anger, the issues that that were going on behind the scenes, to a much more cohesive, a much more well produced, and much more well written album, and and Peace Sells 1986. It's one of the four we mentioned from 1986 and the early 1987, the the biggest releases, and the, I mean it was just a massive improvement. It, it was it, like I said, light years ahead of what came out. Killing is my business. I okay. You and I have had this conversation before. I like Dave Mustaine, but there's something that grates me about Dave Mustaine. And Killing is my business. When I say the songs weren't there, yes, it was. It was an album that had positive reviews. Yes, it was an album that was was basically the the starting point for for them, and they got themselves off the ground. But, you know, if they didn't come up with Peace Cells, they're going nowhere at this point. Yeah, they got signed to Capital because, you know what? Capital saw that there was something, you know, with Killing Is My Business. And someone saw, you know, if we if we get these guys on the straight and narrow, they can do something. Um, yeah, they spent all their money on Killing Is My Business. But, you know, it wasn't a lot of money to begin with. You know, so that's why they had well, self four thousand dollars worth of drugs is a lot of a lot of drugs. Yeah, but when you think about four thousand dollars to record an album, 
you know, and they and you, no, well, yeah, yeah. And you it was eight thousand dollars initially, yeah, and then you know, four thousand on drugs. It, and, it's not a lot of money to record now when you compare compare it to Capitol Records or to to Electra Records and stuff like that. And each and it's funny because each of the bands, if you notice, you know, Master of Puppets was the first album, first new album for for Metallica on Electra. You know, Spreading the Disease was on Island Records, so they got more money. Um, Peace Cells is on Capitol. Slayer went to Jeff Def Jam, and so you know, they, and they had uh, Rick Rubin produce them. So all these bands and all these albums jumped to the major label, and so that that also has a tremendous amount of to do with it as well. But the songs, you you you, you can make a, a a crappy song shine, but you can't make it great without it being a good song to begin with. And that's a really terrible analogy, what I just said, but what I'm, what I'm trying to say is... <laughs> I get know, what you mean. The, yeah. the songwriting had to be there. And then, you know, you had a great song, now you got a producer and, and the money behind it to make it better. But if the song sucked, no matter what the producers and the money did, it wasn't going to come out, it wasn't going to sound good. You know, And these songs are definitely much better. Um, now one, one thing I want to say about that is that time changes a lot. You know, when you, when you go through something bad, when you, when you deal with, with personal issues, etc., they say time heals all wounds. And I tend to feel like every year that Dave got further away from his departure from Metallica, um, the, the music and it got better, you know, from, from peace cells all the way to rest in peace and then onwards um you know he he became more open more exploratory and dealt with his his personal problems and i think peace cells was was further away from that you know he had released one album that gotten that that initial anger out which didn't do him any favors um but when he releases peace cells i mean this is this is light years ahead. So we go from peace cells to so far, so good. So what? Um, and, and this is the, the first lineup change for the band. He ends up firing Gar Samuelson and Chris Poland and replacing them with Jeff Young and, and Chuck Beeler. And it's to me, you know, it's a step down. It's unfortunate. There's a couple good songs on here, uh, but it's not quite the release that, that, you know, you'd be hoping for after something as major as peace sells. Uh, but there was, there was some, you know, issues going on with the, the band. Chris Poland, unfortunately had developed such a bad problem that he was pawning off equipment that, uh, you know, the didn't belong to him to pay for drugs. There was, there was a lot of issues that, that, uh, you know, plagued the band and, and it really didn't help the album be good. It wasn't until 1990 when you know the classic lineup, the 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 lineup that I think most people think of when they think of Megadeth, where Marty Friedman and Nick Menza would join the band, uh, where Rust in Peace came out and was there, at that that point you know in this this grouping of albums we're talking about, this many would consider to be Megadeth's magnum opus. Yeah, I agree. The the funny thing about Megadeth, you you referenced it. The farther and farther away he got from the initial pain of of Metallica firing him, 
the unfortunate part for, to me, in my opinion, for Dave Mustaine is that he never let that go. It wasn't till way later, some kind of monster later, <laughs> that, that he didn't let it go. Because I always feel, or I always felt, that Dave lived in the shadow of Metallica, much by his own doing. Let, let, let me put it that way. He, it, it wasn't, it wasn't a, a situation where, you know, no matter what he did, he was always going to be in their shadow. It wasn't like that. He purposely stayed in their shadow, in my opinion, okay, because he just couldn't let it go. And each album, to me, reflects the same thing. You have Metallica release and Justice for All, this progressive, heavy-ass album, and he says, I need to do something better. I need to come out with Rust in Peace, and he did. And yeah, that's great. And and you see what happens a few years later. Metallica puts out the Black Album. He puts out Countdown to Extinction. It was like that throughout his career. It wasn't necessarily the same in terms of what happened in the 80s, but you know everybody had a great album in 86. Okay? The next album, So Far So Good, So What? You know, it was... It was all those things caught up to him, the drugs and the alcohol and all that caught up to him, and, and he put out a, eh, an okay album, you know. And so did Anthrax. I mean, Anthrax kept the, mo- the momentum going with State of Euphoria, but it wasn't as good as, as Among the Living. Among the Living was outstanding. Not everybody released a better album the next time. I mean, it's hard when you get to these like you said, the magnum opus. And, and at that time, Peace Cells was the magnum opus for, for Megadeth. And mind you, there are only two albums in. You get to the third album, and it's like, eh, it's not as great as the second well, album. I mean, that was that was the same for everyone in a way because, I mean, after... I, Master of Puppets, I I think, is a stronger album, obviously, than Injustice for All. Um, but Rain s- and Blood, I think, is also a stronger album than than South of Heaven. Obviously, uh, Among the Living is a stronger album than State of Euphoria. And, and the same for P-Cells with, with So Far So Good, So What. But, but I think like the, the next albums also that followed were, always, were also an upswing. I think a lot of times with bands, when they release something so great, it's hard to follow it up. There's a mental block that says, you know, we got to do something better. And it's not, that's not always conducive to being an artist. And, uh, you know, especially when there's personal problems, et cetera, going on it, uh, you know, it, it makes it hard to, you know, place or, or, you know, put out something that's as good as you want it to be. And, and when I say like time heals all wounds there, there's a difference between letting it go and moving on and just feeling better because you're away from the situation so, like, you know, I, th- I think we've all suffered some kind of, you know, injustice or, or you know, no pun intended. Um, but <laughs> um, we've all suffered something like that where it affects us in our day-to-day lives and our mentality and our, you know, our confidence in ourselves, etc. And so, like, it's easier to deal with further away. But when it's when it comes back and, you know, 
directly into your face and, and it's there and it's harder to deal with. And I think the the further and further he got away from his situation in Metallica, the music got better. But um, yeah, of course it, it, he may not even have still let it go a hundred percent till this day because it was something that aff- affected him really deeply. So I can't, I can't fault the guy for something like that. You know, it, you, you say, let it go, but sometimes it's hard. Oh, absolutely. It's hard. And I, and I understand it. And it's, it's funny because it's, it's one moment in time where a, a, a guy got fired from a band and it acted as two different things. It acted as uh, an inspiration and it acted as a bitterness for him. He, a he, hindrance and an inspiration, yeah. You know, because it was his inspiration to be better than Metallica. Okay. But at the same time, it, it, it held, he held on to such a bitterness for such a long time. And yeah, you know, it's funny. He, he, he let it go because they shared the stage just a few years later in 85 and, and, you know, with a, a, on a San Francisco show that, you know, no, not many people talk about. And throughout the years, he was on the same bill as some of these, you know, festivals that they played. But they, mm-hmm. did, they didn't necessarily, you know, go buddy-buddy. You know, maybe Lars saw uh, Dave and he said hi and they, they kind of had a, a passing by and they maybe took a picture or whatever. And there's, there's a few of them around throughout the years. But it wasn't until the big four in Bulgaria or, uh, or Sofia that, I don't know if that was the first one. I think it was the first one. You know, in, in the middle 2000s, that they actually all collectively, all four bands got together. You know, mm-hmm. the Clash of the Clash of Titans in, in 1990, I think it was 91, that tour definitely brought the original, you know, three of the big four, but it wasn't until the big four tour, in, you know, in Europe that they all four got together. And that's, you know, we're talking 20-something years after the fact. But, you know, for, for Dave... His, to me, I mean, again, his anger towards Metallica inspired him and he came out with some great music. And it's just unfortunate that his decision making was based on what he saw them doing in a lot of cases. Uh, I agree. You know, and I, I, I just, I tend to think, you know, in, in the situation, um, say, say reverse the situation and instead of, of Dave being kicked out of Metallica, Lars is kicked out of Metallica. I think there's there's a lot of similarities there in that, you know, they both have the ability to grade on people. They both have, you know, the, a, a strong attitude of, of you know, a, a loyalty in a way, you know, where it they felt like like Lars is so obsessed with the band, you know, the, 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 I, you know, the, the iconic, um, scene of him screaming about Jason, he left the band, you know, <laughs> the, the, there, there's, there's something to that, like where that friendship that they, you know, they all bonded in a way and, and feeling betrayed in some way, there's similarities there. And I see that between the, the two guys, even though they're different, there, there's, there's something there that they both feel. And I, and I, I just, I have a hard time, you know, really judging any of these guys when, when there's, there was just so much going on at that time. And the, the fact is the fate is that 
that was never that situation was never going to work. But luckily, we got some really great songs out of that combination, and Kill 'Em All was a killer album for it. So, um, but I think I think one last thing we need to talk about a little bit because we're going to talk more about it on our next episode is the the Black Album, and that's kind of the the bookend to this this first group of of uh you know the the big four releases it was the black album was such a monumental shift in in cha- in the this the sound and it's it's technically considered a thrash album but it's something more it's something different the black album from metallica or metallica's self-titled 1991 album is a seismic shift that would influence so much that would come out ahead of it that it's you know or behind it if you whichever you want to look at it that it it's definitely going to take up a lot of the next episode <laughs> as far as what we're going to push into it that album changed the game for everybody except for Slayer Slayer never gave a shit <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, that's just the way Slayer is. But it, it, it definitely changed the game in terms of accessibility, in terms of popularity, in terms of all, you know, of, of touring, just, just how things were changed when that album came out. The music scene and the music industry was completely different after that, you know, and the album there are elements of thrash it's almost like it's not really a thrash album but there are elements of thrash it's not really a pop album but there's elements of pop you know there's not really it's not really a heavy metal album but there's elements of metal you know you can say it for so many different things enter sandman is this incredible song but you you can't you can't pigeon you can't pigeonhole it you know you want heavy you got heavy sad but true well, you know, Harvester of Sorrow is just as heavy. So, you know, people were saying, saying, well, this album's not heavy. Sap True is pretty freaking heavy, you know. But it wasn't It wasn't those songs that really changed the game. It was a song, I think it was song four on side one, The Unforgiven. And song two on side two, Nothing Else Matters. Those songs changed the game. And it would change the game forever from this point forward. Well, that's the end of part one, the big four and more. That brings us to our big four for tonight. And the big four for tonight is kind of unique. It's the big four of the big four. <laughs> or or I don't know how you want to look at it, but basically we're going to pick the best album of each of the big four or what our opinion is of the big four. And then we're going to rank them. So, you know, so so it's like a double ranking. You know, you're picking the best album, and then you're going to pick it in what order you think is better than the next. So I'm going to begin tonight because you started last week. So this is what my big four, big four is. So number four for me is it comes from the band that I would say I have the least connection to out of the big four, and that's Slayer. Number four for me is Rain and Blood from Slayer. As much as I love the album, I love the other three more. Okay. And you're going to see a, a, a little bit of a, of a common thread theme 
with, with these albums except for one. Number three, as you mentioned before, it was the magnum opus of Megadeth, Rust in Peace, their 1990 album. That, to me, is hands down Megadeth's best album. It has two songs that are staples today in their set. And, you know, just like Rain and Blood has two songs that are staples in Slayer's set up until Slayer retired. So, you know, Rust in Peace is just... Is, is is it for, for Megadeth? Now, they've done good stuff, but to me, rest in peace is it. Number two, Among the Living from Anthrax, 1986 or 80, 1987 release. It is their magnum opus. It is their best album. You know, they still play four songs from that album, you know, and sometimes five. I mean, they play NFL. Um, they play Caught in a Mosh, I Am the Law, Indians, at least those four, they sometimes play Among the Living, they sometimes play Skeleton in the Closet, sometimes they play the whole damn album, you know, it's it, that's how good <laughs> the album is. All right, and number one, Master of Puppets. To me, as, as good as the Black album is, and as many copies as that album has sold, Master of Puppets is, to me, Metallica's magnum opus. Master of Puppets came out in 86, Among the Living 87, Rain and Blood 86, it was that time period. Rust in Peace came out a few years later, but with everything within a f- that four or five year period. So that's my list. It's a good list. Uh, mine's a little different, uh, but we do have a couple similarities. Um, so I'm going to start with, th- you know, the same thing you said, the, the band that I have the least connection with, and that's Anthrax. Um, I, I did not get into Anthrax until really much, much later, in fact, in just the last couple years. Um, and the the only album that I had and that I really knew a lot about was, was Sound of White Noise. Uh, I, I grew up with the John Bush era, um, so I... I didn't really hear the Joey Belladonna stuff until later and I just didn't like it as much. And I really grew a respect for it later, you know, when I, you know, opened up my tastes a little more, I would say, you know, I've gotten into glam a little bit more and stuff like that, where I've, I've come to respect the, the music in general more. But for me, Sound of White Noise was it. I mean, I know it has some alternative elements to it, but those first couple of tracks just blew me away. And uh, I love John Bush's voice. And so that for me, that's the that's my number four. Um, number three, this was a tough call because I have to think about it in terms of what I've listened to more over the years, I guess, uh, versus what I'm listening to right here at this moment. So I'm, I'm picking number three, even though I'm listening to it more now, um, it, it's rain and blood by Slayer. Um, it's like I said earlier, it's, it's a near perfect album. It's, it's so good. And, and, uh, this is Slayer at their peak. I love the next two albums that came out, but rain and blood is just something special. Um, I think that's really enough said in, in that regard, uh, for number two, I picked Megadeth peace cells, um, peace cells, but who's buying is it, it, I don't think it's necessarily quite as polished or as really as, as good in a way as, as rest in peace, rest in peace is just that, that like that, 
you know the the production so much better the the you know the all the all the polish all the maturity is there um but what i love about rust in, i'm sorry what i love about p cells is the the rawness is still there it's it's that first album that really defines who megadeth is even though Kill, uh, Killing is my business. Did that a little bit with with the attitude and the speed, but it wasn't truly defined until P cells. And the other thing, I just love the music. Uh, like P cells, but the the actual track is is just so amazing. Um, and it's it's the first album that I owned by the band too. And I think that's always a factor. Is is you know like when you when you're young and you're you're getting into the music, sometimes the that factor the nostalgia of it can be you know something huge in, in how it affects you and so for me peace cells i like better uh, than than rust in peace even though the the first couple of tracks on rust in peace are my favorite megadeth songs so it's, it's kind of a it's a conundrum there for me to pick <laughs> <laughs> and then for my number one i picked the same as you master of puppets um Throughout my life, Master of Puppets has been a bigger factor, a bigger effect, and it's it's just the best album that that Megadeth, I'm sorry, that Metallica ever put out. Um, Cliff Burton, it's such a tragedy that he passed away after this album because it, they were getting better and better, and and just the the shift that that they were becoming so much more mature and growing. Um, you know, I'm, it, and the lasting effect that he had can be felt on Injustice for All, but it's not the same. And as much as I love Jason and the, the influence that he had, and I love watching those, those concerts, the, with, with him there live and, you know, the, the direction that the Metallica went and they've had some great albums since, um, I, I'm always going to wonder what could have been if Cliff was still around. Yeah. And, and Master of Puppets is is that album that to me was just it's again like 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 I say with Peace Cells, like I say with Rain and Blood, it's just perfect. And um I I can't think of honestly, I can't think of a, a an album that's had more impact in the thrash realm on me than than this album. So, um definitely my pick, my number one pick. I like it. I like your list. All right. Well, that wraps up the first episode of our three-parter. The next episode, we're going to talk a little bit about the bands, uh, a lot of bit about the bands that followed and joined in in the next couple years after uh, the the initial big four. Uh, Bands like Exodus and Overkill, uh, we're going to talk, you know, about the same, you know, kind of thing, like their introduction into Thrash and their impact. And then we're also going to talk about where the big four went from their initial, you know, their 80s run into the 90s and then we're going to lead into some of the new bands that were developing uh, in the 90s as well and so j- make sure to tune in to the next two episodes we're going to really go over thrash in detail and uh, make sure to, to log into our social media give us some opinions tell us who your big four is for for the big four and uh, stay tuned because we've got more for you all right make sure to tune in next week and always turn it up to 11. See ya.